going to do one of your songs from Jesus Christ Superstar. You tell me how much I messed this up. Let's do this. Here we go. It is the first lockdown of 2020. Andrew Lloyd Webber has challenged the Twittersphere to upload covers of his show tunes, and Niall Rogers, the former chic guitarist, has taken the bait. After a few repetitions of an irresistible guitar riff, he starts to sing. My mind is clear now. At last, all too well, I can see where we all soon will be. The song is Heaven on Their Minds from Jesus Christ Superstar, the second collaboration between Lloyd Webber and lyricist Sir Tim Rice. A heady mix of driving rock and symphonic sweep, Superstar charts the last days of Jesus' life in what has become one of the most iconic stage shows of all time. And that hypnotic, hyperactive riff, concocted 50 years ago in a marijuana haze, well, it just keeps on reappearing in different guises across the entire spectrum of musical composition. You can hear it in the panicked staccatos of Italian jazz pianist Stefano Bellani. Beneath the Phrygian melismas of Turkish arabesque singer Nezye Karabocek. Pulsing through the rhythm section of metal band Acid King. And in the frenzied beats of Detroit hip-hop collective Soul Intent. And yes, that is Eminem, or as he was then known, MC Double M. This continuous reincarnation is emblematic of the show as a whole, with three Broadway revivals, countless arena tours, cast recordings in 15 different languages, and over 17 million copies of the original concept album sold. Superstar remains as relevant as it was when it first came out. So what is it about this rock opera that makes it, as one Times critic wrote, the one masterpiece of Lloyd Webber's career? Why, after five decades, does it still give pause for theological thought? And how can one piece of music connect such disparate-seeming artists as Dmitry Shostakovich, Gagouche, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Kanye West? To celebrate 50 years since Superstar first opened on Broadway, we've dedicated an entire episode to answering those questions. This is the, the Jesus Christ, Christ Super Special! If you picked up Time magazine on June the 21st, 1971, you'd have seen on the cover a psychedelic image of Jesus. The accompanying article was entitled The New Rebel Cry, Jesus is Coming, and documented a so-called Jesus Revolution. Fronting this unprecedented and primarily youth-led wave of Christian revival were the Jesus people, disillusioned members of the 1960s counterculture who'd co-opted its language, music and hairstyles for a radical new form of evangelism. Four months later, Christ was back on the time cover, this time portrayed by actor Jeff Fenholt, draped in gold lame as the title character in Superstar. Can you give us some wider context for this, Tim? The year 1971 came towards the end of what historian Arthur Marwick called the Long Sixties, a period of about 15 years that saw a cultural revolution across the West. Mm. 
the rise of the youth counterculture, sexual liberation, and massively polarizing events like the Cold War and the Civil Rights Movement had flipped society on its head. People began questioning everything that had come before, including the role of religion. Meanwhile, the Second Vatican Council, and its impetus to bring the Catholic Church into dialogue with the modern world, had helped spur and legitimise new musical settings for worship. Ray Rep's jolly 1966 folk mass, for example. And the rise of televangelists like Billy Graham meant that people were now used to the mixing of religion and modern media. All this loosened the taboos around biblical settings, paving the way for both the Jesus people and musical theatre productions like Bernstein's Mass, mm. Stephen Schwartz's Godspell and Superstar, all of which appeared on stage within months of each other. That's not to say that Superstar wasn't controversial, though. Like the Jesus people, it had an instantly polarising effect. Decca Records received letters from pastors that brought declarations of congregational boycotts on all the records they produced, as well as requests for lyrics for use in sermons. Even the Vatican couldn't present a united front. The Pope's radio station played the album in its entirety, declaring it a work of considerable importance, while the official Vatican newspaper published a scathing denunciation. want to know, he said, and then the haunting chorus, Jesus Christ Superstar, do you think you are what they say you are? Yes! And more, 10,000 times more than two men in England ever put in those lyrics is Jesus Christ. Billy Graham voiced a lot of the resentment felt by fundamentalists when he accused Superstar of bordering on blasphemy and sacrilege. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But it was the commercialism of the project that drew the most ire. Another letter to Decker went... Anyone that has to stoop that low as to use our Lord's name to make money is not better than the scum of the earth. Jewish and Christian protesters picketed theatres. The Teatro Argentino in Buenos Aires was actually set alight by Catholic extremists. Which, of course, did wonders for ticket sales. <laughs> in fact, when Superstar opened, it had more tickets pre-sold than any other musical in history. All the New York glitterati from Andy Warhol to David Frost could be seen at the premiere. The show's title had become self-fulfilling. In what other ways did Superstar capture the zeitgeist, Tim? Well, like religion, rock music had changed. Thanks to the likes of Bob Dylan, Pink Floyd and the Beatles, intellectual appreciations were now de rigueur. Mm. And the album had become its most important outlet. And that word album is significant in the story of Superstar because that's how the show was initially conceived. After the success of their first collaboration, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Rice and Lloyd Webber had pitched Superstar to stage producers in London, only to be told rather brutally, that their idea was the worst in history. But the head of MCA Records, Brian Brolly, came to the rescue, backing <laughs> the release of a single and a follow-up concept album. Any success could then be used as leverage for a stage production, and it turned out to be an accidental masterstroke. Yeah, I, I, I did another recording later on this morning, or just about lunchtime, and it wasn't recording, so I did it twice. Oh, no. I've had a very good day so far. That's Sir Tim Rice. We actually got him. Well, the reason we 
recorded an album before doing a show was that no one wanted to do the show. Had we done the show, we wouldn't have recorded the album until after the show opened. And I think it would have been nothing like the success it turned out to be if we'd done it that way around, because the record enabled us to use great forces, um, orchestra, plus rock band, plus lots of soloists, plus big choirs, which would have been almost impossible, particularly back in 1970, to stage. If we'd opened as a show, we would have probably had a small provincial theatre orchestra and we couldn't have had a very big cast and it would have not been so rock because of partly because of technology and partly because theatre and rock were not that associated together at that point. And indeed, when we came to Broadway with the show eventually after the great success of the record, we found that the typical Broadway audiences, even in 1970, were not really attuned to rock. And um, it, it, it didn't work as well as it might have done on Broadway if we'd opened it a few years later. Yeah. The show itself, do you think that would have been different had it opened on Broadway first? Like, for example, presumably you would have had included dialogue or, or, or not made it so concise. We thought of doing dialogue initially, I think, having written, even though we wrote it in fairly operatic form, we assumed, I think, that we would need to have dialogue if it went onto the stage. But all the same, as we were making a record, we wanted to make the story complete in the sense that somebody following it on record would, would at least get the story. But that turned out to be the story told rather well. It was concise, and ever since then I realised that less is usually more, and we didn't need a book, um, which we might not have discovered if we'd done it in the theatre. We would have had a, a book and lots of arcs and character explanation and development, all this stuff which wrecks most musicals. But it was forced upon us because I suppose we were trying to do something that no one had really done before. And consequently, as happens with every new um, change in, 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 art, in an art form, people don't get it immediately. I'm not sure we got it. We, we weren't really sure what we were doing, but we were doing what we wanted to, mm. and, it, and it worked. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Joe Cocker, let's go for Sunday. And the Grease Band. Superstar hit number one on the Billboard album charts on the 20th of February 1971 and stuck around for a mere 102 weeks. As Sir Tim says, a lot of that success was down to the musicians. Joe Cocker's world-famous Grease Band, fresh from their set at Woodstock, had been drafted in for the rhythm section. They were overdubbed with almost 60 classical players poached from London's top orchestras and a glamorous cast that included Deep Purple's Ian Gillen, Blue Minx Madeline Bell, and rather bizarrely, Gary Glitter. But despite the big names and huge investment from MCA, nobody quite knew whether the album would be a hit. In fact, most of the players asked for session fees rather than a royalty, thinking it a wacky project in the hands of two unknowns. The band. Um, but the, the parts on, on Andrew's album that we played was, it was the nucleus rhythm section, which was me on keyboards, and a drummer called John Marshall, and a bass player Jeff Klein. Yeah. That's um, Sir Carl Jenkins, mustachioed composer of The Armed Man. We got him too. 
He played keys on Superstar back in his session days, though hilariously, he can't actually remember which tracks he played on. And the three of us formed the basis of a track, a few tracks, I can't remember which you... I mean, it didn't... Although it became obviously enormous, uh, as we all know, when you do a session at the time, you don't, although I knew them, kind of, kind of I was unaware. I mean, I, I never had a copy of the album, uh, but obviously I knew the music from having played it and also then um, because of the prominence it had. Around that time, I played Oboe on an Elton John track that was on Tumbleweed Connection. I also played saxophone on George Harrison, uh, All Things Must Pass. But I wasn't doing a lot of sessions, but when when we went, when I wasn't on the road with Nucleus, that's what I did, you know. Um, and none of these, at the time, we were all young. It was part of what we did, and you not quite aware. I mean, it was very enjoyable, obviously, but uh, it wasn't as uh, like a blinding flash or that's, that'll be a hit, you know, or it'll be whatever, but... Um, But a hit it was, especially in the States. After a successful album launch at St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Manhattan, fans began staging unauthorised performances in churches and theatres all over the country. An official concert tour followed, then in October that year, with the biggest advance in Broadway history, Superstar opened at the Mark Hellinger Theatre. Nearly two years after their brutal rejection, Rice and Lloyd Webber finally got to see their passion project realised on stage. Never, in my opinion, was so wrong a production mounted of my work, said Lloyd Webber of the psychedelic extravaganza dreamt up by hair director Tom O'Horgan. Apparently it was a brash and vulgar interpretation. And the critics generally agreed. The first West End production by Rocky Horror director Jim Sharman was a much greater success, running for eight years and becoming the longest-running musical in West End history. But for Rice, Superstar is most effective when it stays truest to its rock roots. What I did learn fairly soon was that Superstar works best as a rock concert, with you know very effective staging and, if possible, brilliant technology, great lighting, nothing wrong with costumes, but I think... As a modern rock concert, it can't be topped, and therefore a recent run in London in the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre was terrific. Don't you know everything's alright? Yes, everything's alright. Which brings us up to 2021. In the 50 years since Superstar opened, countless stars have lined up to play what are now iconic roles. Alice Cooper, Johnny Rotten, Tim Minchin, John Legend and Mel C, to name a few, and countless more have professed their undying love for the show, from Dmitry Shostakovich to Louis Theroux and, bizarrely, Vladimir Putin. Ah. In the next part of the Super Special, we'll be breaking down some of the show's musical elements to find out why it appeals to such a broad church. Come, Timbo, let us slip beneath the compositional cassock of Superstar and inspect what structures and devices are being used to maintain this musotheological facade. Ooh, Sam, it sounds like a delight. Do you think we could include thoughtful contributions from prominent Superstar fans from across the globe? Let's make it as communal as possible. Hello, 
analysis. I mean, it was very powerful. And I got to love the... I'd been a bit snooty about Superstar, you know, and about Lloyd Webber in general, really. And uh, I actually got to really love the piece. I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I thought it was very powerful. I mean, you know, one could say musically it's a bit... It's not quite. It's not all jo joined up, but but I think some of it is is very 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 moving, and and the part of Jesus, you know, and, and the way that Pilate is portrayed as it's quite sympathetic and mm. very quickly. When you say it's not joined up, what exactly did you mean by that? Just in terms of um, musically, it's filled. Yeah, around? musically, I think they're musically. It, it sort of just has points where it, I'm just sort of thinking back over it and thinking perhaps as points where the the sort of recitative style isn't musically as strong as the big numbers you know yeah. so it's a little uneven in that way but if i compare that to how well woven the you know the evangelist recitatives in a bach passion are they're so well beautifully thought out and the harmonizations and the word p painting and the pointing is so so carefully crafted but you know maybe maybe i shouldn't make comparisons between the two i'm not sure well, that's kind of why, it, it, one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you, it, just to sort of see if, if you think that it is possible to make comparisons, but whether you can... Well, maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe. I mean, Lloyd Webber's obviously, you know, it's a contemporary take. It reflected my, the more pop side of my musical upbringing. And then going to Bach or, I don't know, Handel, hand mainly Bach, I suppose, one has to say, although I... I've done the Schutz Passions too, unaccompanied Schutz Passions and mm. the Haydn Seven Last Words and those sort of. I, there is a, yeah, I think there is a, there's a kind of, well, there's a connection for me musically. There is a strand that connects them. That was the voice of John Hancorn, an operatic baritone who got roped into a Swedish touring production who were looking for some more classical voices to sing the priest roles. John was expressing an opinion about a musical element that connects JCS to the 16th and 17th century Germanic tradition of telling the passion story through music. Gerard Depardieu lookalike Heinrich Schütz and Alpha Papa J.S. Bach depicted Jesus' crucifixion through a combination of aria and recit. Just like Rice and Lloyd Webber. A more traditional structure in musical theatre is spoken dialogue, where much of the action takes place, then a song will kick in. Often you'll hear the orchestra strike up just as Rex Harrison or Dick Van Dyke is starting to turn their chatter into a sort of pitch speaking that blurs the lines into a full song. By George he's got it, by George he's got it, now once again. Where does it rain? If you're Rex Harrison, you never get quite beyond the pitch speaking, but fortunately, both he and Dick usually had the infallible Julie Andrews to duet with and save the day. But in Superstar, there's no Harrisoning. Because there's no spoken dialogue. It's all sung as recitative, a less dense kind of music than aria or song, but certainly not free speech. We need a more permanent solution to our problem. Recit and aria versus speech and songs isn't a debate where one option is necessarily more musically compelling or convincing than the other. Many composers have written a dodgy recit in their time. As Rice was saying earlier, they ended up using this structure because JCS was an album before it was a stage show. But one advantageous characteristic of it is the whole musical becomes very tightly constructed. If, as a writer, you're asking a composer to set every word you write to music, then you'd better be writing as efficiently as possible. And this little revolution in structure had an influence on one Alain Boubil. If you recognise that name, 
it's because he was one of the duo that wrote Les Mis. Yeah, we got him too. Jesus Christ Superstar is what made me feel that there is a different way of writing a musical than West Side Story or Fiddle on the Roof, all these masterpieces. Uh, but suddenly I could see there was a different language. I could see that it was through song. Uh, obviously the fact that it was made as a concept album which could try to impose that story before people would see it on the stage and maybe the reason why they went to see it on the stage, all that impressed me in a way that made me think, oh, the people who are have written this musical are different. Boublil and Claude-Michel Schoenberg released their own rock concept album, La Révolution Française, in 1973, which became the first staged French rock opera. Les Miserables, the concept album, was released a few years later. I felt we could tell the French Revolution in the same way, in that way. Mm. With our own language, our own style, and then we forgot about Superstar and just did our own thing. We kept is the format, which I mean the true song, which basically is what we were always thinking that we sh- we wanted to do, but didn't feel allowed to do because both Claude Michel, especially Claude Michel, is is a great opera fan, and uh, that's how we felt liberated in a way, and obviously. Be, both of us being record producers at that time in the pop world, we were completely, you know, excited by the idea that we are going to produce an album which was going to be both a pop album and at the same, same time fulfilling our, our dreams, which was to tell a, theater, a story in a theatrical way, I would say in an operatic way, based upon historical facts And if you're sat there thinking, I know another famous show that sounds like it was influenced by this, retelling their country's history through a medium that's through composed in their own musical language, you'd be right. If Jesus Christ Superstar kind of freed us after having discovered before musical theatre and has freed us, I mean Claude Michel and I, we have probably freed from that lesson we, we learned many other people yeah. after doing the French Revolution, Les Miserables, and, and uh, you know, I'm not telling you a secret, saying to you that Lin-Manuel Miranda has learned from Les Mis, which he says has freed him to do Hamilton. What comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Who's our next musical magi to share some of their favourite JC especially interesting characteristics, Sam? It's only megastar of contemporary composition Nico Muli, and he's got something to say about the use of dissonances. The other thing that, I, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm probably the more, speaking more abstractly and also specifically than other people you talk to, but there's a really strong and clear relationship to dissonant material and consonant material. And that when you have these ballads, you know, it's just beautiful. And then you have very, very prolonged sections where it's quite knotted and gnarly and the, um, the harmonies are all over the place. And it, it's not just for effect, it like sits there. Like, like dissonance is the home base of a lot of these things. So, you know, this Jesus must die is a good example. There's, 
I don't know. I mean, there's there are a lot of them that are that are desi- that are designed around dissonance rather than using dissonance as a. As yeah. Let's delve a little deeper into what Nico was saying. The opening chord of Jesus Must Die is this. It's got that jarring interval of an augmented fourth in it. Sometimes it's called a tritone, as it's three whole tones away from the other note. Lloyd Webber could have just as easily written this, which would have felt minor and sinister, but that wasn't quite unhinged enough for him. So we start off with a tritone. The vocal melody then introduces another tritone. Then the real fun begins. How do you mean? Well, there's been dissonant music going on, but it's all one dissonant music. Now a new music enters, interrupting the priests. It's the Hosanna superstar crowd of disciples. They're in a new tonality, singing at a different tempo. In the film version, they're even given a different acoustic environment. The crowd sound like they're outside. The priests are closer. We've had one fractured and gnarled object going on, but now it's juxtaposed with something completely different, another layer of dissonance. And it's not just cool musically, it's crystal clear storytelling. We can hear these two groups are opposed. Even when you're just listening, you can imagine who the camera's on and how they might be framed. And that dissonant juxtaposition is something John Snelson, editor of publications at the Royal Opera House, wrote about in his book creatively titled Andrew Lloyd Webber. The use of irregular metres, accented chords which aggressively emphasise or disturb the sense of metre, and angular melodic lines frequently involving prominent tritones as well as the juxtaposition of solid textural blocks contribute to a sound with roots in Stravinsky, Prokofiev and Shostakovich. Is it worth finding a couple of those irregular modernist metres and time signatures, Sam? I think it probably is, yes. See if you can detect how many beats there are per bar in this little number, the temple. It's easy to remember if you happen to be a fan of 17th century early metaphysical Christian poet George Herbert, who wrote a collection of poems with the same title, The Temple. This temple's not by George Herbert. This temple's not by George Herbert. This temple's not by George Herbert. Silly. Seven Time was also a favourite of the great modernist classical composers of the time, Bartok, Stravinsky and Shostakovich. Here's a little medley of them using that uneven, lopsided dance to different effects. I love about seven time or five time, which there is also lots of in JCS, is that it invites a dance, but a very conscious kind of dance. You can't be lulled into just stomping on one, two, three, four. Because then you'll end up out of step. As a listener, I find myself propelled along, but compelled to stay glued to the detail. And that effect is all the more powerful when Lloyd Webber juxtaposes sections of irregular time, a seven or a five, with a more conventional section. Again, he's all about creating unusual musical neighbours. He's at it from the very off. The sound world of the overture and the whole subsequent show is a combination of the orchestra with a rock band. (laughs) 
me to hear. I mean, it's, it's funny because, of course, you know, it, I, I come from the exact opposite, exact opposite place where all I listen to is that, you know, fucked up, like, things in weird time signatures and, and yeah. things that are, you know, that where that's the building block. But, yeah, I mean, that's great. I mean, I think I think there is something for everyone in this. And, and it's funny, it's like a lot of my friends who, who are diehard, you know, like modernists or whatever, yeah. are, it's, it's not even a guilty pleasure. This is just great. Again, what's fun about JCS is that each of the different musicians we've heard from have picked up something different that speaks to them. And in each case, it's a serious musical point. Whether that's Boublil and Hankorn talking about the show being through-composed with Resit and Arias. Or Mooley and his dissonances. Or Snelson and his juxtapositions. I think what it does show is that it's worth doing away with any snobbery that surrounds Jesus Christ Superstar, something I will happily say I've been guilty of in the past. The guys who were playing on this and writing it were clearly plugged into the major artistic trends of the time. And as we'll hear shortly, if you're going to borrow from the classical canon, in some cases pieces that were written by the most edgy and artsy contemporary composers of the day, then you've got to be aware of what those people are writing, what the emotional content of that music is, and how to integrate it into a musical theatrical whole. It might pain me to say it, having seen Cats, but Jesus Christ Superstar shows Lloyd Webber and his team to be substantial musicians, well aware of modernist ideals, as well as the historical writing of passion plays. They're innovators who found a stable combination for all these volatile musical elements. You got to pick a pocket or two. The Andante from Felix Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto, written between 1838 and 1844. Jesus Christ Superstars, I Don't Know How to Love Him. I don't know how to love him. What to do, how to move. Dance of the Nights from Sergei Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, written in 1935. Jesus Christ Superstars. Pilot and Christ. The second movement from Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony, written in 1953. Jesus Christ Superstars, Trial Before Pilot. To me, Jesus Christ, you have been brought here, manacled, beaten by your own people. Giorgi Ligeti's Lux Eterna, written in 1966. Jesus Christ Superstars, The Crucifixion. Superstar throws up some pretty big theological questions, so we thought to get some answers we'd have a chat with Sir Tim Rice. 
I think, arguably, there are some quite bold uh, theological stances. For example, there's no resurrection, even though Judas reappears for the penultimate track. You've centred Judas's doubt, you know, right from the beginning, from, you know, you really do believe this talk of God is true, right through to the end, you know, do you think you're what they say they are? And then there's Mary's romantic love for Jesus, which may or may not be requited, uh, possibly ambiguous, possibly not. Um, at the concept stage, were you fitting characters around these big ideas or were those big ideas an, an accident of the characters that you created? Oh, very much the latter, I think. Mm. I don't think I think big ideas at all, apart from what would I do if I was in Judas's shoes and what would I do if I was in Mary's shoes? I didn't have any particular message to get over at all. I don't believe in messages in musicals, so I don't believe messages anyway. But I think if you start trying to ram a point of view home unsubtly, it, it doesn't work. Whereas if you have believable characters and they are in situations which people can say, well, I might have reacted that way, or even if they say, well, I wouldn't have reacted that way, but that's more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I think the story is such a strong story that when people read the Gospels, they all take different views on it. And in a, I'm not saying that our work is up there with the Gospels, but it's, it's the kind of story that we can, well, it, it, it can be interpreted in lots of different ways. And I'm happy for that. For me, one of the most interesting moments is your take on The Last Supper, actually, where you, you kind of, again, presumably by accident, you turn the conventional understanding of the Eucharist on its head. It's traditionally, it's a way of memorialising the sacrifice that Jesus has actively chosen to make. But uh, in your version, it feels as though he's being personally neglected. He's saying, for all you care, this wine could be my blood. And I just wondered, at the time you were writing it, did that feel radical? Did those decisions feel radical? In a way, I suppose it did. I was trying to give a plausible uh, script, as it were, to the events of the Last Supper. And in, in the Bible, which is, of course, in the four Gospels, which were written quite a way after the events and written really as Christian propaganda, trying to, and totally reasonably, really, trying to continue the cults, the teachings of Jesus. And I thought the people writing the Gospels, nobody would have taken notes at the time, and a lot of them weren't around anymore when, when the Gospels were being written. But I just thought, what might Jesus have said that could be slightly misinterpreted, you know, 40, 50 years later? And why would he suddenly say to these, you know, fairly simple people, I want you to have this ceremony after I've gone forevermore. You know, my body and blood will be, you know, symbolised or even actually literally changed by the bread and wine. That seemed to me an unlikely version of what actually happened. Might have happened that way, but I, I, I don't think it did. So I, I just gave Jesus some lines which incorporated the concept of wine and blood being transferable. And in a way, I mean, you've, 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 you've spotted what, what I was trying to do. I mean, he, he, he felt that he was not getting anywhere. He felt he was being ignored. 
He said, for all you useless lot care, this wine could be my blood. Mm-hmm. It's quite a strong thing to say. But it's not what the religion of Christianity adopted. They, they In the Gospels, they implied much more strongly that, that drink this in remembrance of me. This is this will be my blood. This 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 is exactly what I'm, I want you to do. And I just thought, well, he might not have said that, or certainly mm-hmm. Judas would have interpreted that way, and it is really seen through the eyes of Judas. Yeah. I think I get the idea is to be deliberately ambiguous, I think, but is Jesus in Superstar a, a divine character for you, or is he human? Well, I think he's he's human because we don't have the resurrection. We're not in any way denying the resurrection, which is what a lot of critics said. This is blasphemous, there's no resurrection. Well, the story ended before the resurrection. Judas's death was actually before Jesus's, and he wouldn't have known about the resurrection if, it, if indeed it happened. Right, yeah. And we're not saying it didn't happen. I personally don't think it did, but if it did happen, we're not categorically saying it didn't. And I used to say in American interviews in the early days, well, you know, we, the Gettysburg Address is not in the show, but that doesn't mean to say we're saying the Gettysburg Address didn't exist. I mean, that's, that's not, not a totally stupid comparison. And I would say that this Jesus in Superstar is totally human. But the point is that a lot of people at that time were beginning to think of him as something superhuman, including himself. Well, indeed, yeah, as, Je- as Judas sings. And, and he had doubts in the Bible, in, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has doubts about his role and about what he is. Can I talk about Mary very quickly? In your libretto, she's, she's an amalgam of three biblical characters, I gather, the adulterer in John 8, Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany. And that has precedent in Christian tradition. But you chose to adopt it as well. Can I ask why was that? And I mean, could you have had two Marys? I suppose we could have had two or even three Marys, but that would have been confusing. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, to be honest, I was I, I just thought of it as one Mary. I, I was not even really aware at the time of the other Mary. Or if I was, I didn't think they were of any importance. And I, I created the character of Mary, or created the song, which would reveal a bit about her character. I think it was just a somebody who's irresistibly drawn to somebody, and she's simultaneously a bit frightened and scared, as well as you know she can't help herself. She she, she loves and and is a, is a bit frightened. But that's that's quite a common situation for people to be in, even if you don't think the other person is God. So it's. It's, it's really, first and foremost, a lady having a few doubts about her love. Simple as that. It's, it's, it's interesting, a piece like Superstar, based on one of the greatest stories ever told, it's possible to have lots of interpretations. And sometimes I think of, if I'm, if I'm watching Superstar, the last one I saw was Regent's Park, sometimes I, even though I, I wrote the dialogue, I sometimes think, hmm, maybe he or she was thinking something a bit different I mean, Judas, or Pilate, Pilate's a very interesting character. I I wish I'd written Pilate a bit better. I'd like to have had a a longer discussion between Pilate and Jesus. I was following the gospel script too much for Pilate, I think. But it's, I mean, it's still a pretty nuanced, interesting relationship that they have in the show. And and it certainly taught me... Well, Pilate and Jesus. Pilate and Jesus, yeah. I mean, it's... It could be more interesting, I think. I would have liked to have had a... A discussion between the two of them that, that veered off into slightly different areas. But 
it ain't broke, so I don't need to fix it. <laughs> no. Well, that was going to be my next question. If you were writing it now, would you have written anything differently? But perhaps... Written now, I think I would have written it very differently and it probably wouldn't have been half as good. <laughs> yes, there were a few lines I thought. I, I never was never happy with the third verse of King Herod. It was not just feed my household with this bread, you can do it on your head. It's just not as funny as the first two. Mm. I've tried a lot since, you know, here's a something, here's a fish, you know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I would like to have got something a bit better there, but it works. And, and there was one or two other, other bits here and there. But when I, when I look at something like Gethsemane, I think that works quite well. I don't think I would change that. And I quite like the tribute to Hare with Hosanna. Hosanna, hey, Zanna, Zanna. I mean, it was Hare who did Ubi Dooby Wabi Wabi Wooby or whatever it was in Good Morning Starshine and showed me that you can have nonsense lyrics which actually kind of say something. Yeah. And a crowd, if you've got a crowd in any situation, football match, or they're all yelling and singing together. You can't really make out what they're saying, um, which is probably just as well in the case of most football crowds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so talking about lots of different interpretations a minute ago, I mean, that's clearly a byproduct of superstar success is it's been thoroughly scrutinised by people like me. Are there any interpretations that have really surprised you or even irritated you? I don't think there have been any radical misinterpretations of what we were trying to do. I mean, my, my own interpretation changed from time to time. I was annoyed that one or two people accused us of being anti-Semitic in the early days, which was mm. just not true. They'd say, well, you portray Carfas as a pretty nasty piece of work. Well, he probably was. But I keep saying, well, actually, well, Jesus is Jewish and he's a nice guy, so you know, it evens out at least. <laughs> but um, it's... Uh, I mean, the, the, the only major complaint we ever had on theological grounds was, where's the resurrection? You know, a lot of people might have said, we don't like it, we don't think it's very well done, but they weren't complaining particularly about the motives or the actual storyline. I mean, the thing is, if we'd written a musical which is just as good about most other subjects, I'm not sure one would have anything to talk about other than the show's success, if it was still going after 50 years. I mean, it's, it is a topic that has had a, such a fundamental effect on Western culture for 2,000 years that even if people don't like the concept of um, Christianity, let alone whether Jesus is God or not, they're still intrigued by this show. Even if, having heard it, they think, hmm, it was no good. But it's, you know, th th there'll be books written about Jesus and Judas and Mary Magdalene and Pontius Pilate until the cows come home. Mm. Well, in that respect, do you think that if Superstar came out in the exact same form today, would it cause the same amount of, I don't know, scandals the word? I think it, 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 I mean, there's been so much that is more shocking in a way since in the 50 years since Superstar. And one has to remember that, that certainly when I was first following popular music in the late 50s and early 60s, you weren't even allowed to mention God on the radio in a song in passing. So the, the times have changed so much that for that reason alone, it would be very hard to cause quite the ripples that yeah. we did. But I mean, we, the record probably helped to change the times to a certain extent. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you claim any responsibility for shifting the the taboos or, or loosening well, taboos? Well, I don't know. I mean, 
a little bit, maybe one or two people's views were, if not changed, but at least stimulated or anti-stimulated by something like Superstar. But we were, we were just in the right place at the right time. And it's interesting, of course, that the idea of doing a show was rejected strongly by theatrical producers because it seemed to be a bit shocking. Yet once the record had taken off and we proved that whether you liked it or not, it wasn't something that, that, that was going to destroy society, it was kind of accepted almost, almost overnight in a way. Just great to hear two Tims having a chat there. Uh, I thought it was very funny when Tim was saying the Gettysburg Address isn't in the mm-hmm. the show either. It made me think that there's no resurrection in Bark St. John Passion either because the narrative stops early. Uh, I assume that there's been no outcry about that. Interesting to hear him say that he didn't think it would create as much fuss nowadays, which no doubt is true, but I thought it's worth pointing out to listeners that a protest against a performance of Superstar uh, happened two years ago, 2019, mm. at the Marketplace Theatre in Armagh in Northern Ireland. So it's still, you know... Ruffling feathers. Ruffling feathers, you know, yeah. 50 years later. Yeah, and I, it made me think of Neil McGregor's interpretation of the Magna Carta. His favourite Magna Carta is the completely blotched, blanked out one where you can't make out any of the words because it's been cited on both sides of every debate for freedom and accountability, whether that's suffragettes or that's the civil rights movement, and it allows anybody to read what they want into it. Mm -hmm. I think from hearing Sir Tim talk about it, he's very much in the spirit of raising the questions rather than providing the answers. And I think that that's a really healthy approach to any foundational story, any foundational document. So... His interaction with the Gospels is one of inquiry rather than answers, and I really appreciate that. Last point I want to mention, to add to what Sir Tim said about Superstar contributing to the breaking down of taboos in the 70s, it's notable how many uh, productions, musicals, plays, films, uh, passions, operas came pretty close on its heels uh, that start really playing around with the idea of the passion story. For example, Daniel Pinkham's Passion of Christ, 1975, that focus on also focuses on the character of Judas and his own gospel. You've got plays like uh, St. Mark's Gospel, 1978, um, Justin Carroll's Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, 1976. You've got uh, musicals like Harry Chapin's Cotton Patch Gospel, and then films mm. like The Life of Brian. Yeah. it's really becomes a very uh, fertile seam for people to tap into quite immediately. Tim, we've already looked at the many classical pockets Lloyd Webber picked. Before we round things off, shall we name and shame some of the artists who've picked Superstar's pocket? Absolutely. Earlier you mentioned the lineage from Superstar to Les Mis to Hamilton. Well, it was Lin-Manuel Miranda who pointed out how many rappers love Superstar because, quote-unquote, every track you can take the bass part and make a rap song out of it. He even included a secret love letter, as he called it, to Lloyd Webber in the form of a 7-8 time rap in Hamilton. Of the many other hip-hop songs to sample Heaven on Their Minds, French group Tout Simplement Noir's 1995 track Plus Four is up there with the coolest. Yeah. 
But Kanye West did the same. His 2016 track, Feedback, samples in Retrograde, the theme song to a 1970s Iranian police drama called Talakh, which features a riff you might just recognize. Shout out to our 37 Iranian listeners slash VPN users. The best known of all superstars songs, I Don't Know How to Love Him, has been covered by Nancy Sinatra, Rivers Cuomo of Weezer, Shirley Bassey, Peggy Lee, and even Bonnie Tyler. But surely the greatest version is by Itchy and Scratchy in a 2006 episode of The Simpsons. I don't know why I trust him. Stunningly good. Earlier, we played Stefano Bellani's Heaven on Their Minds, part of an entire album of jazz piano superstar covers released last year. But how about Buddy Rich getting on the superstar train early in his 1971 big band cover of the title track? And speaking of tribute albums, our favourite has to be Jesus Christ's Surfer Star, lovingly put together in 2008 by 24 surf bands from across the globe. Here's Gethsemane by Catalonian group Sofornes. You know, Tim, I've always thought that you should do your own album of superstar covers. Yes, it's something I've genuinely considered. (laughs) As listeners will probably have gathered by now, superstar means a huge amount to me, certainly more than any other piece of theatre, possibly more than any other piece full stop. The Fishers owned a VHS of Norman Jewison's masterful 1973 movie adaptation, produced by Melvin Bragg, no less. And I actually have an original poster for the film's Mexican release, Jesu Christus Superstar, hanging above my bed. As a teenager, I once spent an entire 25-minute walk to school giving a song-by-song account of Superstar to Sam, who, by the way, did not ask for it. The aim of this podcast was to hit on something concrete that would explain why Superstar has enraptured so many others in the same way it did me. But the more people I spoke to, the more I came to realise that it's impossible to pinpoint one thing, because every individual encounter will elicit a unique response. What I can map, though, is the variety and sheer quantity of responses. Hello, how are you? Very good. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I really appreciate it. Sure, sure. That's our final guest, the Canadian musician, producer, director and visual artist Peaches. In 2010, she transformed her teenage superstar obsession into a one-woman show, Peaches Christ Superstar. Just her, singing all the songs with nothing but a piano accompaniment and a series of increasingly elaborate costume changes. At last... And that in itself is a pretty extraordinary response to a musical, particularly from someone who made their name creating sexually transgressive electronic music. When I asked her whether she was conscious of a queer reading into the relationship between Jesus and Judas, she said something that really struck me. I, I Of course I thought about it, of course you think about all of it, but um, I really just wanted to um, just be really direct with all of them. And it's interesting the way different audiences react to it. So I found different countries uh, really understood what I was doing in such different ways. In Germany, for instance, they take the work very seriously. They took it as an opera, that I was performing an opera, and they did not clap at all. 
And I was horrified. And then at the end, after like, you know, an hour and a half and everything, they gave me like eight standing ovations and, you know, so they took it this way of like, we're really seeing it as, as, um, you know, part of, part of religious history and, and part of yeah, tradition. And, passion yeah. plays perhaps. And passion plays. They, they, they mm. talked a lot about Matthew's uh, passion play and all this, you know, which to me, I'm, I'm not interested in all, but, um, and then I would go to the States and it was like a pop show. Mm. It was like, you'd hear, dun, 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 and they'd be like, yeah, get him, Judas. Well, I know this pop song. They almost wanted to, to make it like a Rocky Horror Picture Show. Then when I performed it in England, there was such a sense of pride. Like, this is our, this is, our, we love this. This is ours and you're doing us proud. But the, the wildest response was Australia because they were laughing. Because they were like, yeah, Peaches is f***ing up religion, and this is so funny. It was like Mary, when I would say like, and I've had so many men before, and they're like, ah! I think that case study is revealing and goes some way to explaining superstars' power. I'm going to use a slightly tenuous physics analogy here. We know dark matter exists, not by measuring the thing itself, but by measuring the universe's gravitational response to it. By the same logic, I believe that there is a dark magic to Superstar that we can't measure or define, but we know exists because of the breadth of powerful responses to it. Whether that's a one-woman show, an album of surf covers, or a 40-minute podcast, and that feeling of needing to respond to a work of art is surely one of the best metrics we have for its value. Before we go, there are a sort of silly number of people to thank for this episode. Firstly, those who agreed to be interviewed. Nico Muley, Sir Tim Rice, Sir Carl Jenkins, two nights on one podcast, not bad. Peaches, Alain Boubil and John Hancorn. We are forever grateful. Yes, also the various people kind enough to respond to my random and often very long emails. Katie Rosen, Larry Eskridge, Neil Hubbard and Butterfingers of Soul Intent. He was a real character. You were particularly kind, and I shan't forget it. A couple of quick plugs. The Tim Rice Podcast is back for a new season. Go check that out. It features Sir Tim at his chatty, witty best, where he talks about his career in theatre, music, his colleagues and friends, plus the odd foe, alongside some healthy digressions. Also, be sure to check out the 50th anniversary super deluxe re-release of the original concept album in a 10-inch box set with a 100-page hardcover book, which I gather features an essay from Niall Rogers, no less. And all that remains is for us to wish all you out there in the podverse a very Merry Christmas, and hope that you've enjoyed unwrapping this little present we made for you. <laughs>